Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, welcome to this session with uh, Pip Adam, Nothing to See. Uh, my name is Carl Shurka. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the mana whenua of Otao Tahi, uh, tu Ahuriri. So I come at Pip firstly as a reader of her stuff from afar in London, and then latterly as a friend. As a writer, Pip is that rare thing, one that seems to have emerged fully formed. Her unique tone, her spare and hyper-simplified style was established from her first book of short stories. She makes you ask the question, wait, um, can you write like this? Can you just say that? Is this prose? (laughs) So unadorned, so breathtakingly literal. And then you realise it's not you that's asking these questions, it's Pip herself. She ain't no John Steinbeck, (laughs) one reviewer wrote. And Pip gleefully hijacked this for her Twitter bio. Uh, But this reviewer missed the point that she could be if she wanted to be. And missed the point that Pip is punk. And punk is both very simple, deadly serious, and wonderfully subversive fun. She can devote three pages to making quiche until disbelief gives way to high absurdity and then to something finally almost unbearable in its gravity. But inside these arias to making frittata and a pages-long scene devoted to a character looking for a phone charger, you also have to be very, very careful. Pip is a master of hiding dangerous and powerful stuff, of leaving little sharps lying around, dangerous, infected, moving stuff, horrors and profundities even, devices that radically decrease gravity, that move the ground under your brain. Her first full-length novel I'm working on a building used the simplicity in a dozen different ways and built a narrative backwards that you had to reassemble in your own brain. So her control and restraint were incredible things to witness. And the new animals extended the limits of this control to one incredibly long, sustained set piece of rising tension over delivery of, yes, some T-shirts and pants for a photo shoot to the point where it had near-mystical significance. And then she dropped that 40,000 words of unlikely but magnificently managed tension without hesitation or explanation. And the last third of the book follows the ex-prime minister's daughter transmuting into a quite literal mermaid right before our eyes in the Hauraki Gulf. Quite how this was normalised without litigation during the John Key years is a mystery to me and a tragedy for VUP publicity. (laughs) Her latest book is Nothing to See. I finished it about 24 to 48 hours ago, to be honest. And I don't really know what to say about this book. It's devastating and sad and mysterious, and it's full of ghosts and loss, and it totally creates and then undermines an entire reality. I think it may be Pip's masterwork. It made me laugh out loud and left me speechless, groundless, lost, kind of afraid, but finally deeply grateful and deeply moved by the simplest of things complexly earned. Can we say welcome to Pip Adam? Cheers. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for coming. Um, I'm just going to do a short reading. We could make a quiche, Greta said, like she was the bravest person on the planet. Really? Dale said, then, how do you make a quiche? 
Dell had eaten them before, they all had, but they thought they were made in some special quiche factory that only sold to bakeries. We saw it in the Alison Hulse book, Peggy said. She went and got it from the kitchen. Someone looked at their watch. There was a supermarket at the end of the long drive and they could get the things for the quiche up there. The night was big, big sky. Everything was built low around where they lived and the sky was always so big. There were no hills to box them in until the huge hills way in the distance, which seemed to make the sky even bigger. Peggy and Greta always walked with their hands in their pockets. Dal swung her arms a bit more, but they all walked with their heads down. It was dark. Someone honked as they sped past. None of them looked up. The walk was flat and Dal was carrying a backpack to put all the stuff in it. They needed one large onion, chopped, two garlic cloves, one tablespoon of butter, three eggs, three quarters of a teaspoon of salt, one cup of milk, half a cup of self-raising flour, two cooked potatoes, one cup of drained cooked asparagus or spinach or mushrooms or broccoli, and one cup of grated tasty cheese. They had none of it. Dell was stealing tea and coffee from her work and milk powder and sugar and sachets from the cafe at the mall. Sometimes she didn't have time for a cup of coffee at work, so it seemed fine to take it home, the cup of coffee she didn't have at work. We've got the butter, Greta said suddenly, into the silence of them walking in the dark of the night and the big, big sky. The others nodded. It's only a tablespoon of butter. The store was bright compared with outside. Did they need a trolley or maybe a basket? Everything was cheaper than they thought it would be, and in the end, they had enough money for a new flan dish with a solid, not push-out base, and they still had most of their money. Cooking is cheap, Dal said. They paid and walked home. The walk and their success at the supermarket made them feel more awake rather than sleepier. On the way home, they talked and talked. Greta held the flan tin above her head. Every now and then, they'd get a bit of a run on. We'll never need to buy salt again, Peggy said, holding up the huge container they'd bought. We'll be splitting it up between us at our 50th birthday when we finally have enough money to move into our own places. They laughed and then fell silent. The future really wasn't any of their business. And where was Heidi? And why wasn't she here with Dell? At home, they started getting everything together. They only had breakfast bowls, so they made the mixture in three parts. Dell was good at converting everything into thirds. They often had 30% off sales at her work. They turned on the oven. They hadn't used the oven except for making toasted cheese, but it smelled okay. The people before them must have cleaned it pretty well. They didn't have a cheese grater, so Greta used a butter knife to cut up the cheese very small and then not so small as she lost interest in the task. <laughs> Finally, it was time to put the mixture into the flan dish. It looked good. Then they put it in the oven and turned the light on and took turns looking at it through the oven door. They talked excitedly about what else they could make. They took turns looking through the cookbook. There were recipes for bread. Could they make bread? It seemed impossible. They'd buy a grater. Maybe they could catch a taxi to the big supermarket across town and buy other stuff. Maybe they could meal plan. Peggy had seen a magazine article about it. The time was up. Dell wadged a couple of tea towels into her hands so she couldn't burn herself, and she lifted the quiche out, and it looked amazing. Is it cooked in the centre? It was cooked in the centre.
So can we talk about, um, you know, the key thing with the new book? And it's right at the heart of it. And for so, so much of the book kind of just leaves it alone. And um, it's the key device and it's the doubling of the women. And it's, it's the most fundamental thing that happens in the book and it, it shapes everything. And um, for the first major section of the book, we don't even know that this has occurred. And then um, you finally come to understand, well, these characters are the same woman. And he's, okay, what does this mean to me? How does this metaphysics work in this book? And then it undoes, and they become one woman. And it's this most, like, first this kind of absurdist device becomes this tragedy. And then it redoes. And, and then you spend this whole period of reading the book absolutely terrified that two fictional characters, two nouns, two proper names, are going to become one again. It's an amazing effect, and um, it seems to me like a way more of a, like a super condensation of stuff that you do in other books. And I just wonder if you'd talk about how you got there, what it means for you. I think with this, the first image that came were these two identical women, and not identical like twins, like identical, identical. And um, I sort of started feeling a double with me, like I would go places and I would start to feel that double with me. And um, I guess... I mean, I've spoken about it as sort of this externalised version of self-care, like um, what is it to look after yourself? And is that easier if yourself is a physical manifestation in front of you? So it became very exciting, the thought that I could have a version of me and see myself moving in the world. Um, so that's sort of where it came from. I think people often see it as a, a perhaps metaphorical thing, but for me it was very much a very literal thing. This idea that I didn't want it to be a situation there was where there was an original and a double. Mm. That, that was something I wasn't interested in. So for me the idea is that they split like cells so that there isn't an original originator and an imposter. Yeah. So, yeah, I think those are the sorts of things I was thinking about, yeah. There's a, a sense that I had, it was a sort of like calamity. You know, it was a calamity when it happened, and they, they couldn't remember it because they, you know, if I recall it right, they're in a blackout yeah, when it happens. Yeah, yeah. And they essentially wake up with all the calamity of a hangover and, you know, fear of what happened, but they're also two. Yeah. And um, it's a calamity when it happens again, when they collapse into one. And... Um, this, this sense of these terrible things happening to people who are also you know, incredibly vulnerable and struggling to like, you know, build a life without the skills that have been lost through years of you know, being outside the regular world. Is it, did you structure it thinking like um, it was an emergency? I very quickly thought that I wanted it to undo itself. Like I really, I really liked the idea that it was there and then it wasn't there. And I think that... Um, I'm interested in loss and I'm interested in grief and I'm interested in this idea of, you know, um, the ways that we lose ourselves. And I think that um, just this idea that... Um, I, I, think, I think it's because in the book there are the two sets of doubles and two of them are kind of doing okay. Like, it's actually working for them and they've found a way to make it work. And there are two that it is just not working with. And Heidi and Dell. Yeah, Heidi and Dell. And to take it off the people that it's working for and not off the people that it isn't working for 
it's kind of a tragedy for both of them, you know what I mean? Like it's kind of like I would do anything not to have this and now you don't have it and you're sad about it. So I think definitely, I, I think also it's something I noticed with the book when I was trying to find a reading, like I'm a bit of a drama queen. I'm sort of in the soup of high romance, capital R romance, you know mm. what I mean? Like the first book I kind of read properly was Wuthering Heights and I hold that book very, very close. And this idea of high emotion and high, you know, just living in the high places. And I think maybe that's why my style has to be so flat. Right. Because I'm a little bit scared of sentimentality perhaps as well, which is ridiculous because I think, I feel like we're living in this wonderful new era where we're sort of, the next thing from irony has to be sentimentality. Mm. And yeah, so I, I that think... That seems to happen quite a lot. I remember David Foster Wallace saying that in the 90s. Yeah. And then yeah. we kind of ignored that. Yeah. I was just thinking, because one of the most sardonic and kind of sarcastic characters in this is you don't realise till right at the end is actually doing huge amounts of work to make up for something awful that, you know, when you reread the book, you realise happened like about page seven. Mm. Mm. And in the background of this whole book is this whole kind of your main characters have been having all their struggles completely missing the point. Mm. And, you know, sustaining that. I mean, I won't go into, like, praising all the time, but sustaining that over, like, 350-something pages is pretty, oh. pretty amazing. Cheers, mate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, let's go into something a bit harder edge, shall we? So you... I feel like I'm at a job interview. Yeah. But, like, there's people at the job interview who are not also being interviewed. They're going to make the decision. <laughs> So you polarise reviewers. On the one hand, someone calls I'm working on a building somewhat dry. Or they call the new animals a curious designer morsel, attractive but unfulfilling. Mm -hmm. uh, one reviewer called for better editing of your characters given names that not so many might start with a D. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, you know, Damien Wilkins just called you a major novelist. Mm. Uh, you got the Acorn Prize, you made writer in residence. On the other, other hand, Kim Hill said to me that you need a degree in, in semiotics to read you. So do you feel misunderstood and what's this all about and what's it like for you? <laughs> um, oh, um, I'm obsessed with, I'm obsessed with the artifice, you know what I mean? Like I'm obsessed with fakery. I don't know, and I think that is because I come, you know, like I... I left school at 15, I went hairdressing, I came to university when I was in my 20s, I sort of awakened in this period of postmodernism, I was excited by postmodernism, I, I don't know how I feel about it today, but I never ever want anyone to sink into one of my books and forget that they're reading a book, you know what I mean? Like I always want them to remember that they're holding the weight of this or the Kindle or listening or whatever they're doing. So I think... That is annoying for people, and I think fair enough. You know, like, I think absolutely fair enough. And um, how does it feel? Um, I, have, I'm, I have a particular thing where I have an ego that could kill me, you know what I mean? Like, I have this brain that thinks it can kill me and keep living, you know what I mean? And I think <laughs> it's extremely dangerous for me. My, my superpower is doubt, you know what I mean? Like, without doubt, I think I'd be dead. So I think that there were, this mixture is very, very useful for me. 
You know what I mean? Like, I think it's extremely useful. And the thing is that when it hurts is usually because it's closest to the truth. You know what I mean? Like, when someone says, this is flat prose, it's me thinking, I didn't sell it enough. Not that I need to make the prose more, you know, like, I don't know, what's the opposite of flat? I don't know, mountainous. But um, what I think is I didn't sell it, and it's great because it sends me back to the work bench, you know, and... So I think that actually it's been one of the greatest gifts I've been given is the fact that there is a degree of confounding people, which means that remarkably I've kind of been left a little bit to my own, you know, I because I think the thing with it is you either write... I mean, it's that grasping or aversion, isn't it? Like you're either writing towards the praise or away from the thing. Is there a risk when you... I mean, I don't, I don't want to give your style a name, so it's called Pip Style. Is there a risk for Pip Style when it is about artifice and it is about how it looks on the page and it's about a sculpture or a painting and it looks a certain way and it, because of that it feels a certain way? And is there a risk when you, when you want to pull that into a sincere place? That's what I enjoy about writing is that's the challenge, you know what I mean? Like, I remember, like, I, I owe so much to Damien Wilkins. Like, I arrived at the MA with, like, 20 stories, which I thought were awesome, mm. and he said to me, let's just put these to the side. How about you go back to writing scenes? You know, like, I, I don't think you know what your voice is. I don't know what your voice is. No one knows what your voice is. And, and the other thing that he said to me once was it doesn't always have to be funny. Because, you know, that was my fallback was, like, if people are laughing, they love me. You know, and, like, and I think this is the thing. Like, how do you make something that's artificial sincere? And that's where I always go to the poets, you know what I mean? Like, these, these concrete things... Um, that are having, that are all experimental, they're in wordplay, they're all sorts of things, yet somehow they're breaking through. Um, what I was interested in, I, like, I remember I came, your first book I read was I'm Working on a Building. And at first I was like, I had that alienation, I felt like, I don't get this, I don't feel this, is this, this radical simplicity, is this, you know, is she doing Carver, is she doing Hemingway, what is she doing? <laughs> And then, um, because it's backwards, something happened in about chapter three, and it, suddenly there was like a like a firework from chapter one hit a firework from chapter three, and I was like, I'm sucked into this. This is incredible. And I was sort of a fan from then. And then I learned later, you reassembled this. You wrote it out of sequence. And do you want to talk about that process of like reassembling the, the agony of that process? That'd be great. So yeah, I had. I was very much in love with a book called um, Visit from the Goon Squad, which I now am not so keen on. Mm. It's that weird thing, isn't it? You know, but what she talked about was taking out the, the connective tissue, you know what I mean? And I was really interested in this idea of what would happen if things just leapt, you know. And the, the order was really a problem, you know, like it was a complete problem to the point that I just suddenly thought, oh, I could tell it backwards, you know, because for me... Like, in my head, there's this idea that the, the, the protagonist in that disappears as a child. Like, she, she gets lost in a museum. And my idea was that she got lost in the museum and saw her entire life while she was lost. And, you know, could we work up to that moment? You know, could we do something interesting with time in that moment? And, um, 
Yeah, and like I, yeah, I think that's how it happened. And as with everything, you know, like my, I think my grave will say she knew talented people. You know how you see something differently when you know someone else is reading it. Yeah. As a writer, you've got this really interesting thing where you are either going to tell the reader exactly what to think and when to think it, or you're going to give them some space, mm. right? And one takes a little bit more trust than the other. And in the book, you're doing versions of that. But I think with that book, it was kind of like, here's the magic soup. You add your boiling water and see what happens. And, you know, that excites me more than almost anything else. Like, sometimes I wonder if I'd be happy writing books without publishing them. And I think I possibly would, but I would want readers, you know what I mean? Like, I really, I don't think the book comes to life until other people read it, you know? Because of your background, you have kind of come into... Like, the early books were done as part of courses with other mm, people. Mm, mm. And, and I'm not quite sure about... Like, I think the short stories were done as part of the MA. Mm-hmm. And then I'm working on a building was PhD. And then you just went off on your own and did um, New Animals. So writing the New Animals, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it's, you've kind of gone from these episodic... Mm. things, you know, episodic short story stuff, you can move that around, get certain effects. With I'm working on a building, you came up with the solution which joined everything and made it, you know, unified and linear. And then I'm working on a building that says, actually, no, I'm going to sustain a thing. And with it like a plot device, you know, it's a plot device where, you know, the MacGuffin's going to arrive and that's going to solve everything. And then absolutely you saw that off of the knees and you go elsewhere Mm. so do you want to talk about that book which you went out on your own to do yeah um i am obsessed with structure i really love structure and i think it comes from hairdressing i think we were talking about it the other day like when you're hairdressing when you're cutting hair you're often thinking about shorter pieces supporting longer pieces and where the pieces disconnect or connect so when i think about a book i'm often thinking about it like that like it's a shape and space and i think the thing was that um So I went off, I I did feel a little bit lonely writing it and I was scared and I took it to a writing group and, um, oh man, I was so arrogant. They sort of said, this isn't working, this isn't working, this isn't working. And I thought, right, I don't think I'm going to show them this again. Like I just, like, I'm taking my toys and I'm going home. But, um, But I just thought I really need some space. And I think I may have even had a conversation with Damien about it. I need some space to find out who I am and see if this can fly And um, so, yeah, I went home and I had very little time and I complained a lot about it. And then Lawrence Fernley again said to me, you know, like, are you going to write it or are you not going to write it? And I said, well, no one will fund me. Mm. And she was like, well, are you going to write it or are you not going to write it? And I'd be like, well, I don't have time. And she was like, what are you doing from 8.15 to 8.30? And I was like, I'm complaining about no one will fund me. (laughs) And she said, well, how about... And so, yeah, so that's how it started was just, you know, 500 words a day. In 15 minutes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not 500 good words, but, you know, 500 words, you know. And just, and I think that was the thing. Keeping it moving kept it in my mind. It kept me wanting it, you know. Like, I kept thinking, far out, I wish I had 20 minutes. You know, like, so I kept wanting it. So I kept nibbling at it during the day. So my subconscious was working on it. I'd be walking around, you know, people would be talking to me and I'd be thinking, oh, the ocean. And, like, it just, so I think it was, I think the way that we're writing makes the book that we're writing in some ways, I don't know. Like, even when you look at, like, a mistake versus method actor, you know what I mean? Like, I think, I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't know. But, yeah, structure of it, 
absolutely, I think it was you or Anna that put me on to um, Janet Frame's book, Intensive Care. I'd never read Janet Frame because I'm an idiot. And, um, well, I'd read the one with the emergency. Um, but, like, yeah, suddenly I saw that this was an interesting... I liked the, I liked the misbalance and the unart of having two rather than having three. You know, that really interested me because it felt wrong and, you know, so all those sorts of things were happening. Yeah. And it's striking me just now that um, Alady's, you know, which, can I just reiterate, was in the world of the novel, is John Key's daughter. Can I just make it clear for everybody? I wish you wouldn't. Nobody talks about You're Getting a phone call. Infuriating. <laughs> anyway, Alady is in the ocean for, you know, many thousands of words transmuting mm. into a sea creature. Mm. You know, what is it? What is going on? And it, to me, it seems like it's, it's the same kind of um, super condensation or super literalization of the, of the splitting and, and the, you know, the coming back together of the women. And do you want to talk, is it, is it a prism? Is it a, is it a metaphor? For me, it feels extremely, like that's what life feels like. You know what I mean? Like, life feels like sometimes you're split in two, sometimes you're one, sometimes you're turning into a sea monster. Um, you know, sometimes that's what life feels like to me. And, like, so it feels to me like high realism. I just don't know how to explain it. Like, that is the way life feels, you know? Like, it, and I think that it is. And I need to be careful, you know what I mean? Because I do, I see myself going back to things, you know, like, oh, here's a woman who's a really good engineer and here's a woman who's a really good hairdresser and, you know, here's a woman who's really good at writing code. And, you know, like, and then this idea that then, you know, something weird's going to happen to their body. But I think you just have to go with it sometimes, don't you? Like, mm. there are obsessions that I have. I, I mean, like, I... One day I hope that I understand what this, you know, what my body is and how it works. And, you know, one day I hope that there's a sense of calm in that. But until I do, there's all this other, you know, the way to get at the truth of the questions that I'm trying to work out for myself is through, you know, body change, is through doubling, is through all those sorts of things. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. We, we don't have a problem with it, Pippa, so you can keep okay. going. It's really good. So I've got tons of other questions, but I can't, we're kind of, it's kind of nice to have this conversation. But can we talk about some, like a crafty thing? Ashley Young kind of pointed this out to me. Um, your masterful use of the um. Like dialogue does, like probably, you know, 70% of this book is dialogue. Mm. And it, it's, it's like hyper-realist dialogue and it's stilted and difficult and people say um all the time. Can you talk about that? As a small, uh, like, teenager, Hal Hartley was huge for me. And I think as well as Hal Hartley, Aaron Sorkin is huge for me. And again, what I love about direct speech is that it is completely unmediated by the author or it gives the illusion that it's unmediated by the author. I also really love Ang Lee. Um, the idea that in his films, people are saying the complete opposite of what they mean. And I think I love listening to people more than anything in the world. Like, I, if you, you know, as a child, my grandmother and I would often be left in the car while my mother went and did other things. And my grandmother was an incredible gossip. She was fantastic. Like, you know, she would often come in and she'd say, 
Philippa? And I'd say, yes, Carty. And she would say, can't help but noticing there's some men's underwear on the neighbour's washing line. And she is not married. And, uh, you know, so we would sit and watch people. Like, honestly, not talking to each other. We would just sit and watch people and listen to people. And, you know, this eavesdropping and trying to put together you know, what's going on there. And, and the other day we were walking, um, where is he? Do you know how we were walking yesterday and someone walked past and mentioned something? I can't remember what it was. They said something like, oh, that's, that's the isolation area. And then as we walked past, I said, oh, that guy said that's the isolation area. Then someone else walked past and they said, I think that's the isolation area. And I was just like, whoa, dialogue. <laughs> and I don't know, like, I think, um, I just love for it. You know, I absolutely love for it. And I don't know if it's because I came here to go to film school, you know, down at the Ducks Deluxe, and um, I, I really, all I ever wanted to do was make film. And I wonder if there's something in there as well, you know, like, and obviously the major culture I intake is TV. So I wonder if a lot of it is around that, you know what I mean? Like trying to turn the book into dialogue. But that being said, I love writing this much more than I ever enjoyed writing scripts or stuff like that. So, yeah. 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 And how did you feel about this particular book as, as you know, compared to the other ones? Because this is, we talked in the past about The Line of Beauty, right? Mm-hmm. And like reading The Line of Beauty, it was like, this is a big, big proper novel which goes <laughs> forward in time and characters do stuff and you follow them and you believe they're real people and you have those feelings. And to me, I was reading this, I was thinking, this is Pitt's big book. This is what we were talking about, the shaggy monster, you know, the long thing with one thing wrong with it. And, you know, it's, it's I don't necessarily mean that in this case, but is, is that how you were approaching it? The New Animals was successful, which was weird. And, like, I realised that the next book is probably going to be not so good. And, man, the freedom that gave me, it was just like awesome. You know, no one cares about what I write next. It's amazing, you know, and like, I think that's where I got to it. And like, I really do owe this book completely to Christchurch, you know what I mean? Like, I I wanted to ask you, because this is, you're coming back to old territory here. Yeah, yeah. I came to Christchurch in 1994, heartbroken, damaged, you know, like, I was just thinking my first night in Christchurch, I got held... I, I was wearing a hoodie and some baggy trousers and some skinheads threw me against a wall just over there and my hood fell off and I had a shaved head and they were like, oh, uh, oh, uh, oh, uh, <laughs> not sure. Um, and like, so, you know, I sort of came to Christchurch like that and and I had a chip on my shoulder about it and just, you know, like, you know, and totally trying to do that whole, you know, it's me, it's not you, you know, that kind of stuff. But every time I came here, I felt physically, you know, there are streets I have walked on here and I don't remember walking on them. I was banned from Warners, you know, like I just, you know, like it just is this sick or this rising sick that I used to feel. And when I came to Word Festival a couple of years ago, I was walking home from the art gallery at 5.30 at night And um, I got quite overcome by the sense that also the city was the place that I was allowed to get well. You know what I mean? Like, I did all those things to the city. You know, I wasn't a good citizen of the city. And, you know, I stayed here for a lot longer after that. And 
I just, there was something in the air that night. The stars were bright. Um, but there was something in the air. You know, the, the light was a certain way and it was cold. And I just thought, man, this city's great. Mm. And, you know, that freed me up to sort of write this. You know, like, I mean, that scene in my mind takes place in a flat in Sherbourne Street. You know, like, the, and I didn't call it Christchurch because... That was another experiment I was playing. I was like, what happens if... Because it isn't fully Christchurch. You know, the, the second-hand shop is actually in Newtown. And, you know, like... So, yeah. And I think that really this book wouldn't have started if I hadn't had that walk home that night. You know what I mean? Like, I just... I was just so bitter. And I think bitterness is not good for me when I'm trying to write. Bitterness is just... It just doesn't work. Writing out of anger, writing out of you know, getting back, you know, that never works. And yet that cleared and it was, because I also think bitterness is a good barrier to sentimentality. It's a barrier to love. It's a barrier to all that. And I think if I hadn't had that walk home, I wouldn't have been able to start this book. And when I walked back, I was like, there are two of us. And man, you know, like maybe there are two of us and it's sad sometimes. But yeah, anyway, that's the story. You've got one ID number and one ID and it's quite, it's a lot, a lot of little difficulties, aren't there? Yep. It's not easy being two. Now, what you were saying there, because I, I was thinking about those scenes and I'm working on a building and in the short stories, the Christchurch stuff's really pretty hard and, mm. and quite and even a little bitter. Yeah. It's, it's angry. Yeah. But the Christchurch stuff in this book is, I don't know, it's a, it's a strange, strange book because it partakes of that anger and that bitterness sometimes. But there's this stuff about, you know, <laughs> human human growth and change and... Um, you're unafraid to sort of make those statements that I think in the earlier books you might not have or you might have given to characters. Totally. It's good to grow old. Mm. And with that, <laughs> would anybody have uh, a question that they might have? Oh, got, uh, oh cool. Okay, there's a roving mic that's going to come to you because this is being recorded. As a twin, I read it and it was fascinating because when you're little, you're a wee and you go into a room together and you experience it together and you don't talk to anyone else, and, they, and then you split apart. So I was wondering if you knew any twins. Um, the second question is, do you know any alcoholics? Because that's amazing. <laughs> so, there you go. Um, twins. Now, one thing I was really aware of in the book is that I realised that I was making this thing strange and I didn't want to make it about twins, you know what I mean? Like, I, we do have friends that had twins, and, like... I, you know, I think um, Bo was born not long after that. Until, so she was one of my main sort of how do I bring up a baby, this is how you bring up two kind of thing. And, like, the idea that they had shared a womb when they slept together, they, you know, and I just thought this is incredible and I felt a little bit of jealousy. And then I also thought, actually, I do have cousins that are twins, I've just remembered, and, like, they, um, <laughs> they'll be very grateful that I love them so much that I forgot they were twins. Um, but, you know, this idea of, of making a life on your own is quite it's it's been quite interesting to look at yeah and yeah I do know some alcoholics reading it as someone who's looked at the sober community a lot and is sort of sober adjacent um yeah I mean it's a book that they could use because that keep going thing was so strong through the whole book let's <laughs> just keep going I like that another question there you talked a lot about Christchurch and the way that Christchurch feeds into this new book. And I just, one of the things that I really loved about the new animals was the way it represented Auckland in this way that I, 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 I'm from Auckland and it felt very real to me and it felt like it captured something of the spirit of the city. And 
I just kind of wondered uh, about the role of of place and of, of different of different cities and and how how you embodied that, mm. how you created that. Yeah. Um, so with Auckland, I actually walked that book. Like I gave myself twenty four hours and I took all the trains that they take and I went to the places they take. Every place there I could take you to, um, and um, I did that. Because uh, I'm an idiot. Um, but like, and there are conversations in that book that I heard that day on trains and stuff like that. And the ones that were late were late, and the places that weren't open weren't open. And I think that book never really came together until it was grounded in Auckland. And um, I think, you see, this is where I'm at now, is sort of thinking, what is it to make up a place? I suddenly realised that. There is this, I always thought it was frightening to make up a place, but I think that there's a lot of opportunity there that I'm really interested in. I think also New Animals owes a lot to 2666, um, the Bolaño book, um, where there is a Mexico in that, but it's an, a made-up place, but you could lay one map on top of the other. And I really like this idea that there was this version of Auckland kind of floating above the real version of Auckland, that interested me a lot. But, yeah, it, it, it owes so much to 2666, like um, a, a, an astounding book. And, yeah, and I think you're right. I think place is interesting. You know, like we breathe the air, especially in New Zealand where every place we're standing on is contentious and is traumatic and has been, you know, like has this you know, is absolutely um, infused with the trauma of colonialization, And, you know, so I just think, and I think that's something I, I think about a lot as well, is like, you know, like there's something alive in this land, you know, and yeah, so I think there's care and I don't know, there's something that I need to think a little bit more about as far as that goes, yeah interested with nothing to see but also with the new animals probably more particularly the new animals whether you had plotted out the whole thing beforehand or whether you just had your germ of an idea or your embryo and then just saw where it took you yes that's a really good question um generally I don't like first drafts like I really enjoy revising a lot more than first drafts so really what I do in that first draft is that I vomit it onto the page so then I've got something to play with so it's like um I heard someone talk once about carving and the fact that the tree will let you know what's inside the tree to carve. And I think that's all I'm trying to do in that first draft is just get something so that it can tell me what it wants to be. So I'm not a good plotter. Um, and But I must admit that I very quickly move on to that. You know what I mean? Like this sort of came out like... Bleh. So then I started thinking, could it fall into three parts? Could this be a through line? What's happening with technology? And again, then I just let my obsessions kind of um, factor it. That's what I think is so cool is that, like, given the same material and even the same first draft, there's not a person in this room that would write the same book. And I think that is my favourite thing in the whole wide world, you know, like... And I don't know if I'd write the same book on any given day either, which I think is really cool as well. But, yeah, um, it's interesting because the, what I'm working on at the moment, I think very quickly is going to need some a lot quicker perhaps than before because, yeah, I'm dealing with 
somewhere that doesn't exist and yeah that's freaking me out but yeah yeah thank you for that's a good question okay so i i get to have two questions so but the first one is well you you wrote a story for the monsters in the garden book and uh, and i guess you were writing at the same time as nothing to see and it does another thing about violence to women and doubling of women and um i just wonder whether you had any thoughts to share about why you did that yeah um so that that is very much um i cheated um that is almost that come that's lifted out of a first draft of this book like to start off with these were androids the androids had been built for sex um it, it contained an extremely horrendous rape scene um it, and I just, I don't know why I moved away from androids. I'm not sure why I did. And I was very grateful to have the opportunity to do it with machines again. I think what was the problem for me is that with an android, it always meant there was an original and an imposter. And I was having trouble with that structure. I was having trouble with there being an originator and an imposter. So that's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely, yeah, comes from that. Yeah, so they're complementary. Yes, yep. complementary. Yeah. And, and my other question is, are you still writing the space opera that, that isn't a space opera? Yeah, well, I hope it will. I, I, you see, I feel very, um, yeah, I am writing about giants in space. So I'm writing about um, a group of people. You see, you've got to be careful because listen to this. Sounds exactly like nothing to see at the moment. But a, a group of people who are not powerful at all, who have grown bigger, and are now physically more powerful than the powerful people. So the solution that the planet takes to that is to shoot them into space. And um, in space, because the gravity is slightly less, they begin to grow again. So, yeah, um, I'm really, again, you know, like, oh, I just have no new ideas. So, you know, it's sort of bodies are doing weird things. Bodies are sent places that we don't normally go. Yeah, so I, I get really nervous talking about science fiction because there are so many freaking amazing science fiction writers in New Zealand and I am just really I'm really scared of appropriating things and I'm really scared but I really really want to write it maybe no one will see it you know but I and I need that's the only way I can write is thinking no one will see it but I oh man I love it I love space so much we should all be there or maybe not but yeah (laughs) um I have to wrap up now and um Pip thank you so much for um for telling us about the new book because it sounds amazing oh, and it you. just sounds completely different to the other stuff. Oh, good. So, so don't worry. Okay. Thank you to, you know, this brilliant person here. Thank you, Carl.